Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. Hi, I'm your host, Mari Frank. And usually Lloyd introduces, but he's had that flu that everybody's had. So I'm going to introduce the show. We were are thrilled to have you join us on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. You can find out about all of our previous guests and listen to the previous interviews, download podcasts, and subscribe to our podcast at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And tonight I am so thrilled. I'm sitting here with a, a brand new book. It's a fabulous book called Generation Digital, Politics, Commerce, and Childhood in the Age of the Internet by Catherine Montgomery. And Catherine Montgomery is a professor and a media expert. I'll tell you a little bit about her. Um, Catherine is a professor in the Public Communication Division at American University. She comes to American University with more than 25 years of experience in both the nonprofit field and academia. For 12 years, she was the president of of the D.C.-based Center for Media Education, CME, which she co-founded in 1991. During her tenure there, Montgomery's research, publications, and testimony helped frame the national public policy debate on a range of critical media issues. She's led a coalition of child advocacy, health, and education groups in a series of very successful advocacy campaigns. And before moving to Washington, D.C., she was one of our California girls. In fact, she was a media studies professor at Cal State Los Angeles and at UCLA. She is the author of Target Primetime, Advocacy Groups, and the Struggle Over Entertainment Television. This book was named Outstanding Academic Book of 1989 through 1990 by Choice Magazine. Ms. Montgomery currently directs the project on youth media and democracy through American University, and of course she has her new book, so we're thrilled to get her out here all the way from D.C. to talk to us. Hi there, Catherine. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm very happy to be there. You know, it's interesting. I was reading not only your book, but also what some of the people said, and I love this, what um, somebody from actual University of California Riverside said. They said, this is a wonderful book, descriptive, analytical, and insightful. And one of the things she says that, that really hit me was she says here that, Beyond the hype, this book reminds us all that the digital age is being led by our children, and that is so true. When I, th- I was, we were just at a conference at, uh, on cyber crime and what's happening, and it was really directed toward children because they are the ones that are the real digital generation, aren't they? Well, they they definitely are, and it's really an interesting period 
that we're living in. I mean, I think often about my own childhood. I grew up in the age of television, which is, of course, still with us. Right. Um, but very much uh, part of the television generation. And um, it was quite different then. It was a family medium, and children were not the first to use it. And, of course, children were not the first to use the Internet either. But they have played a very, very important, prominent, and central role in the digital culture. Um, You know, they're a very important market. They are what we call early adopters. They very, very easily take to digital media. They're not intimidated by it for the most part. Um, and it has been completely integrated into many of their lives. Right. You know, we just came from this conference, and we were talking with youth there, too, because a lot of the the youth were talking about how it's so easy to get sucked into someone writing you emails and getting you involved in the social networking sites and how it's really dangerous, and they're starting to see it. And um, they're not afraid, though, of anything on the Internet, their, the iPods. And, and the parents often have no clue how to use this stuff that the kids know how to use so easily. And I think that's what's often very scary as we look at all this, that they're, they are in a totally different paradigm, aren't they? Well, they are. And I think for a lot of parents, it's really frustrating and it's kind of scary because we know that it's not like sitting down and watching television or listening to the radio. It's going out into cyberspace where you can really travel freely in many ways. It's like being out in, a, in a, an electronic frontier. And we haven't really had a medium like that in the past. So it's understandably uh, scary for parents. I think they can be heartened to some extent, though, that much of the research about how young people are using the digital media shows that they use it mostly to interact with people they already know. Right. And for the most part, they're not out there encountering strangers. It's true that they can, and it is, you know, a concern that, that doesn't, you know, that we need to pay some attention to. But we also need to understand that these digital media are becoming critical social tools for young people in their interactions as they grow up, in their interactions with their friends, with their family. And they're routinely integrated into their daily lives. Right. You know, your book, Gener- uh, Generation Digital, is, is in many ways really a, a social history of the Internet and the role that the so-called digital generation is playing in it. So why is this digital generation really so important nowadays? Well, there is, what's interesting to me about, uh, about where we are historically, and in many ways I do think it is a social history, and I see myself as a social historian of the media. That's the same thing I did with my first book. Um, we see we're at a period where several different things came together at about the same time. First of all, young people have, incre- have become an increasingly important target market for advertisers. That began, you know, in the middle of the century, but really, really became important the latter part of the 20th century, where we saw a lot of programming on television for children, and then with cable, we saw actual channels devoted to children, and a number of advertisers, many products, uh, you know, began to really target that age group. So they were a very valuable target market at the time that the Internet became a mass medium, and I date that really to the launch of the um, emergence, really, of the World Wide Web. 
which, by the way, as I note in my book, also is almost to the day the date of my own teenage daughter's birth. Oh, wasn't uh, that convenient? <laughs> right. So she really is a Generation Digital kid. Um, so you got to study right in your own house. Right. <laughs> and in many ways, I do. I mean, and as a parent, anybody who has kids and teenagers is aware of all this, you know, not fully understanding it. One of the reasons I wrote the book really was to help people, help parents, not necessarily figure out everything to do about it, but at least understand the forces that are shaping it. But so what I was suggesting and what I was saying is that um, we have children becoming very, very important as a target market. And we have also the um, emergence of the World Wide Web and the commercialization of the Internet at a time when young people are out there as a very important market, they take to it very naturally. And so we have a situation where they are primary targets for a lot of the content that is being created and a lot of the new business models that are being developed. At the same time, you know, the Internet in the, in the Clinton administration was heralded, and I think for good reason, as a very, very important educational tool and in many ways uh, viewed as an alternative to traditional media, an alternative to television, for example. Mm -hmm. This is a tool, this is a medium that will really enable young people, enable children to be connected to the world, to be able to learn about things from all over this planet, and to be able to be involved and to participate in ways that they never have before. So there's a, there was a lot of hope associated with it. There still is, and a lot of promise. So they became important symbols in that way. Children became very important symbols. And then finally, in the policy debates over the Internet and over a new medium, uh, which often did revolve around and still revolve around concerns about safety, concerns about inappropriate content, for example. Mm -hmm. Children became very, very important symbols. Right. So for all of those reasons, they have become kind of charged. You know, they, have, uh, they are in a position of particular importance during this time. And we're seeing that there are so many digital media apparatus now we've got you know the cell phones are not just phones they're everything right i mean they're well they're that's f- right and, yeah. and we've got ipods which you know i have an ipod and i'm maybe i'm i'm getting back into my old digital age here right and <laughs> my we're already iPod. those of us who just got our ipods we're already behind the time exactly exactly <laughs> we'll never and, catch up i know i know and and all of this you know digital media is so popular with children and teenagers So why do you think that is? Well, one thing I think that's very interesting and very important is that um, the new are uh, particularly and in some ways uniquely suited to the developmental needs of young people, particularly if you look at teenagers, adolescents. They are um, developing their sense of identity. They are exploring, you know, who they are in the world. They are... um, exploring and experimenting with their own independence and they're reaching out to their peers and in some ways sort of separating from their families and they're expressing themselves they're learning how to get their own voices how to express their own voices and if you think about it what better tool is there than the internet and then digital media and if you also think about um, the 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 popularity and the growth and the incredible explosion of cell phones and these kinds of mobile technologies in young people's lives, 
that gives them a kind of mobility and independence that is uh, almost as important as the automobile in many ways, because they can now extend their social lives beyond the realm of the family. They can extend those lives 24-7 with these tools and use them and integrate them. And in, in many ways, you know, as some people have said, um, not only have uh, teenagers adapted to and adopted the Internet, they have internalized it. And I think that is really true. So what do you think? Do you think that that has kind of divided families in many ways? You know, how when you talk about growing up with television, and I grew up with television, and I remember when we got the first color TV and we got to watch Elvis Presley, and everybody on the block came over and all these families, and we were all sitting in our family room together. And it was kind of a, um, you know, a familial thing. What do you think about the fact that kids go in and get on the computer by themselves, and everybody has their own computer? Mom has a computer. Dad has a computer. Brother has a computer. Sister has a computer. What is that doing to the actual familial harmony or, or you know, socialization? Well, I, it's interesting when you do think about television, it, often it has been called the electronic hearth. And when you think about the images of television, especially in the early days, it is of this central medium that's in the living room or, as you say, in the family room with the family gathered around it. And we think about it as a family medium. We've often talked about television as the guest in your home. The industry, you know, frequently has said, well, we're guests in your home and we have to behave like guests. And so a lot of the debates about uh, television content has, have revolved around that notion of it being a family medium. Um, and definitely the Internet, although the Internet did start out, you know, for pure cost reasons as a technology that, you know, you, you may have won in your house, it has quickly evolved into a technology and a tool that is very, very personalized. But television has in many ways, too. So this had already happened, and it's part of the uh, way that technology has moved into families so that we already know that the average number of TVs in, in a family are, I can't remember, four or something like that. It's yeah. always more than, yeah. I always think I'm ahead of of what the average is, and then I'm always surprised to find out that already many families have a lot of televisions, and they're already in children's rooms, and there are channels specifically for children. So we've already, with that medium, made some separations in the family. But now with new technologies, with digital technologies, they become more personal, increasingly very personalized. So it is not just uh, the children, it's each individual child. And I don't know that that is necessarily a bad thing. It does, it does in some ways, I think, divide the family. It does set up a situation where parents may not know enough about the culture that their own children are experiencing and are involved with. And it's increasingly challenging, I think, for them to figure out you know, how the dimensions of that culture and what their kids are doing. Uh, so I think it makes it a little bit difficult to parent, and you have to really work at learning something about that, right. learning what your kids are doing online, trying to engage in conversation to talk to them about that. And you almost have to have a lot of the parents I know that, that really don't really understand how to use 
the the technology that much. Really, the parents have to ask the kids. You know? Right, that's true. There been there has been a kind of role reversal in a lot of families. And again, we have to be careful not to completely generalize because you know not every kid is the guru. But there are a lot of kids who are and who see themselves that way. And parents will often, you know, throw up their arms and say, I don't know what to do. I'm stuck. I can't fix this. Help. <laughs> right, and right. call a teenager, right? <laughs> exactly. And they come running in. Oh, really? This is so simple. I don't know why you can't figure this out. And well, I, think and I know is- they get proud of you when you can. I know when I learned how to do Adobe Audition, my son was actually very impressed with me. You know, I mean, he's been on the computer and he goes, Mom, you're, you're so techie. <laughs> <laughs> right. They get proud of you when you can do that. But I know so many parents really are not that tavy, uh, uh, you know, tech savvy. No, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. I mean, first of all, you know, we, we don't, um, you know, we, we approach these new technologies probably with some uh, anxiety, are we using it right? We don't want to break it. Whereas a kid, you know, just kind of experiments. If you ever sit down and watch a kid go online or sit they're down not with afraid. Piece of equipment, yeah. they are, they're not afraid. Plus, they have more time. I mean, let's right. face it, they have time to experiment. It's in their, it's in their genes at this <laughs> time in their lives right. to experiment anyway, to kind of play with things. It's the notion of play and playfulness which a lot of us as adults have lost already. We don't have the ability to play. And so we want to follow, and we've been socialized to follow instructions. You know, how do you do this thing? And um, you can learn something about the technology that way, but you won't explore it. You won't embrace it. It won't become a natural kind of experience for you in the same way. I know, because we'd have to sit down and read the whole book, you know, like how do you use it? I certainly would. Not only that, I have to print it out first, which is pretty ridiculous when you think about it, but that's just my orientation. That's probably my generation. Right, and they don't look at it. They just just keep playing with it until they get it. So many times where they just sit down and they just, well, maybe this will work. Well, maybe that'll work. (laughs) And so it becomes more natural, I think, for them to, to... operate in that world. Now, the other important thing to keep in mind is that the technology companies and the marketers and the market researchers know that this is a more natural relationship for many young people, and it is purposefully cultivated. So they are doing research on young people all the time uh, to learn about how they use these technologies and to figure out ways to develop new software, new applications, new, new tools that, that will be even more eagerly embraced by them. So there is a, a kind of direct relationship between the creators of this new digital culture and the young people and the children and the teenagers who are prime targets for all of that. Right. So how did that come to be that these marketers are going after children who really they they don't have the money themselves. Are they just, you know, moving away from the adult generation and really focusing on the kids and figuring the kids are going to force their parents to buy these things? Well, that's another interesting trend. And um, uh, another thing that I look at in the book, and that is that children have become, uh, first of all, they have greater spending power than they've had in the past. They've had increasingly greater spending power for a variety of reasons. A lot of them have to do with um, parents, you know, middle-class parents who have their children later and have more money to give them. Um, Children have um, more influence over family purchases, and some of it has to do with how busy parents are and how 
families are um, in various kinds of configurations. You know, you have kids sometimes who are having to go from one family to another because they're not, you know, in their original family, so they're being shared, and they go back and forth. There's more freedom, more fluidity, more money. And, of course, teens are working. They're, you know, they have a number of uh, jobs, uh, after-school jobs, so there's just more money for them to spend. And whereas it used to be uh, that we thought about uh, kids as mainly influencing their parental purchases, many of them are actually making those purchases. So more and more products have been created that are targeted specifically to them. And one of the things that I have looked at recently, in fact, after the book came out, is a study that I did uh, with the Center for Digital Democracy and with the Berkeley Media Studies Group looking at food and beverage marketing and the food and beverage products that have been created for young people, which the uh, Institute of Marketing studied and reported on a few years ago, we looked then at the digital strategies that these companies are using to reach these young people directly. But there's a whole new generation of products that didn't exist before. You know, products like easy, you know, easy Mac for kids to make when they get home from school when their parents aren't home yet, for example. So many women are working and their kids come home and they have to prepare their own food, which I don't think is a bad thing. Uh, But so there are many more products. And so that's part of it. So when you were talking about advertising and marketing to young people today, how is it really different from what it used to be? Well, what I mean, what we found is that marketers today are using a variety of different strategies in order to become part of what what one company referred to, part of the communication structure of kids, to be there 24/7, to be able to follow them everywhere they go. And you know, most parents are familiar, of course, with television advertising. There's been a huge debate about TV advertising for many, many years. Uh, but we can see those ads. We know where they are. They're, you know, between the shows on Saturday morning. If you walk by your kid watching TV, you'll see an onslaught of advertising. And um, we we know about it. There have been attempts to actually get rid of that advertising in the 1970s, which failed. But now what we find is that advertising to all of us, but particularly to kids, is integrated into all kinds of different places where they are and different kinds of media that they use. So it's, it's on the cell phones. It's in the instant messaging. It is um, uh, viral marketing is used in, on YouTube so that kids will access, you know, an, an ad and try to send it to everybody else. Um, and then the browsers. Yes, and of course it's, it's all over the browsers. I mean, the pop-up ads, those things are really more obvious to most of them, the pop-ups and the pre-rolls that are right there in front of you. Right. But others are a little bit more subtle. So one of the things that we looked at in our food marketing report were these videos that were created by food companies that um, uh, looked like amateur, some kind of amateur video that some kid would make. Uh, there was one that uh, Wendy's did, for example, and it looks like it's actually taken from an old educational video about uh, about menstruation, actually. And um, they've t- you know tinkered with it and turned it into a kind of humorous little video on YouTube that is really promoting a, a hamburger. Uh-huh. A, a meal, 99-cent meal. Uh-huh. And then that the idea is that, you know, how people will send an email, say, you've got to see this one. Have you seen this one? Have you seen this one? Right, and it right. proliferates, and, you know, it's, it's viral. And that's the power of this new digital medium. It's viral. 
So that's one example of the kind of thing you never think of as advertising. Mm. Or video games, where a product is integrated into the video game itself, and you see the characters in the video game using that product, driving the car, um, you know, consuming the soda, eating the pizza. Right. So it's just amazing where it's all going. And, of course, that raises a lot of concerns about privacy as well, because a lot of it is based on data collection and, um, you know, creating profiles of people so that you will receive not an ad that's just for your demographic group, but a personalized ad specifically for you. Right. And how do you feel about that manipulation? Well, I'm concerned about it, and it's something I've tried to do something about for quite a few years. I've really been studying the digital marketplace and its relationship to children since the beginning of the web uh, in the mid-'90s. And the group that I co-founded and ran, the Center for Media Education here in Washington, released a study in 1996 that identified and really documented the strategies that were being used way back then to target kids online. And Mm -hmm. what I saw was a completely unregulated marketplace, at least on television. There have been some guidelines about what you can do and what you can't do. You're not supposed to have a, uh, a host of a program, for example, sell you the product. When I was growing up in L.A., I, in the L.A. area, I watched a show called Sheriff John, and maybe some of your listeners who are as old as I am might remember it. But Sheriff John, who was on Channel 11, as I recall, used to say to us, you, you must, he'd turn to the camera and say, you must buy uh, Oscar Mayer hot dogs. <laughs> and I would say, oh, i, I got to buy those. He was an authority <laughs> figure, and I would go to my mom and I'd say, Hey, Mom, Sheriff John told me I had to, and of course she never would, uh, which caused all kinds of complexes for me, I'm sure. Uh, but they did develop some rules. The Federal Communications Commission developed some guidelines that you can't have a host do that. It's not fair. There was a lot of research that showed uh, that kids really believe those authority figures. You can't, you know, blend the advertising with the content. When we began looking at all this in the mid-'90s, that's exactly what the Internet was doing. That's exactly the model that was being developed, that you'd have hosts developing personal relationships with kids. And, in fact, I went to a trade association um, conference in the early 90s where uh, advertisers were talking about how we would have spokes characters, product spokes characters, develop personal, ongoing relationships with individual kids. And so all I could think of was, oh, my God, they're thinking about having Ronald McDonald develop a personal relationship with with my kid online. Right. Um, And so that's one reason why we, you know, issued this report and called on the government to do something about it and to try to institute some rules at the early beginning of the digital marketplace. Uh, And the battle still continues. We were able to get a law passed, and I have written a case study of how all of that happened uh, by the end of the 1990s called the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which does put some limits on the kinds of personal data marketers can collect from children under the age of 13, and in fact has had the impact of um, changing some of the practices that were becoming that would have become commonplace. So a lot of these websites that are created for young kids don't collect that information anymore. They just don't even try. Um, but we still see a lot of advertising that is blending the advertising with the content. So you have, you know, 
these branded playgrounds, all these products have created, you know, websites that are nothing but ads. But they're also places where kids can play games and explore and make uh, commercials for the products, all kinds of things that we never would have seen in television. I know we actually saw at this uh, conference that we were at that the exhibitors, there was an exhibitor there who had these browsers for children like Shrek or you know, right. and, the, and the, yeah, right. and and obviously they're they worked with uh, DreamWorks. They're yep. partnering, and right. they're partnering with all these companies. And and so I asked him. You know, he said the nice thing about this is that the, you know the kids can only stay within this playground, and they can't go out to porn sites, et cetera, et cetera. And parents can set this. And I said, well, how do you make your money? You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you always have to ask them what is your business model, right? Right. Because there's always a business model there. And what has often happened is that um, the issue of safety, which, as I said, is not an unimportant issue, but it is an issue that gets exaggerated. And then everybody's so concerned about, you know, kids going online and encountering strangers or get coming in contact with pornography. And so what happens is that uh, we see so-called safe sites that are created, but they may be full of advertising. And that's exactly what I saw. Exactly. And that's, that's the kind of questions I was asking him. Mm-hmm. Because um, that's how I had to ask him, how you're making your money. You just don't have this for fun, you know. Right. <laughs> right, right. So well, it's, you know, and I think the thing that we need to think about as we think about the kind of media culture that's emerging here is, you know, how do we want to structure these experiences for young people? Yes, there's a role for advertising, and we have to have business models. These things do have to be paid for. But can we create some guidelines for what advertisers should and shouldn't do? Are there certain practices that go too far? And particularly, I think, in the area of data collection, that's where I think we need some some rules. And that's why we push to get the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act passed. And I have to say I'm very heartened when I go on almost any website and see that COPPA mentioned, um, and uh, sometimes on the home page, uh, and in the privacy policy, certainly, that we've been able to institute some rules of the road. If you're going to be marketing to kids on this inform- so-called information superhighway, as it's no longer called, you have to follow some rules of the road. Right. So we you know, they're been... supposed to get parent. Why don't you talk about for well, some of my audience, you know, is, like if, parental permission well, if they're no, under the 13. The way it works is if you are going to target um, a website, a commercial website, If you have a commercial website that is targeted at children under the age of 13 and you want to collect personal information from that child, that is, you know, you want their name, their phone number, their friends' names, their email, things that will identify them, you have to get parental permission offline and in advance. And we actually set the bar pretty high so that it really requires marketers to you know, get it through mail, snail mail, or fax, which was, you know, one of those horrific kinds of ideas that uh, industry was really, you know, terrified about. How could you make us do that? But the whole idea is what we wanted was to limit the amount of personal information collected from young people. Uh, Because what we were finding was in the early days of the Internet and of the World Wide Web, companies were collecting just as much as they could. There were, you know, there was one website that was set up to target kids um, about investment issues, financial Mm. issues, and to get information about not only the kids' money issues, but the families. 
So uh, it was just really wholesale personalized data collection or personal data collection. Um, what, we've, what, we have, what we did with this law, what we were able to do, was to curtail some of those practices and put up some safeguards so that most of these websites just aren't collecting personal information to begin with. Now, it's not foolproof. Um, you know, kids can lie about their age. Right. But it does apply to companies that are targeted at that age group, under 13, or companies that knowingly um, have kids under the age of 13 visiting their sites. And that has limited some of it. it. There are some, you know, there's some flexibility when it comes to email newsletters. In some cases, the company can notify the parent by email. Um, there's a kind of sliding scale in terms of the levels of risk involved. And I think it's a very, you know, workable uh, law, and the industry has certainly adapted to it very easily. Now, there are no protections for teens. So once a kid turns 13, it's, you know, no holds barred. Right. And what, what I've found in my research is that much of the um, commercial, uh, many of the commercial enterprises online that are aimed at teens, targeted at teens, are engaging in a huge amount of data collection and personalized marketing. And the uh, teens aren't aware of this either. I mean, they're not aware no, of the ramifications of that. They aren't, you know, and especially I think if you look at the social networking platforms, if you look at MySpace and Facebook, which are very, very popular, and again, right. very, very useful, very appealing tools for young people who are beginning to live their lives on these sites. You know, just think about it. You can go on there and make your own profile. You can connect to your friends. You can, you know, express yourself. You can do so many things. They're, and they're great tools in a lot of ways. And they're even tools for political activism and civic engagement, which is another area I'm very interested in. But what many young people don't understand is that everything you put on that site is fair game and that marketers routinely collect and combine that information to create profiles that they can then use to target to you personally. And you think about how many things you do online on those websites and elsewhere online and think about how much information is being gathered on you. Yeah, and and these kids don't realize what how that might be used against them if they want to get a job later. No, I think you know again. I think somebody was just saying recently. Well, you know, they don't really have any appreciation for their privacy, so why should we worry about their privacy? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we should worry about their privacy, and I do think that it is a new frontier in many ways. And the lines between what's private and what public are very definitely blurred, and in many cases practically obliterated. But um, you know, I think it, when you're a teenager, you don't always think of the consequences of something you put up there and what might happen. And yes, it's true. Employers are using these sites to research people. And, you know, now young people can kind of figure out what part is private and how they can, you know, keep things kind of within some walls. But nonetheless, I think there are many, many ways in which this information is just out there and a lot of people are being able to access it. And a lot of young people don't think about that. Right. And maybe five years, ten years down the line, they may. But, you know, it's a really interesting kind of experiment we're involved in here with this new digital media culture. It's all unfolding before us, and we're all exploring it, and we'll have to work out some of these social rules and some of the uh, government rules and some of the industry rules on how we operate in these new environments. Exactly. We're speaking with Catherine Montgomery, who's a Ph.D., and she is a professor 
uh, at uh, professor of communications at American University in Washington, D.C., and she is also the author of a new book called Generation Digital, Politics, Commerce, and Childhood in the Age of the Internet. And so we're talking about this book and, and all of the issues about privacy as well. Catherine, let me ask you something. Whose responsibility is it to protect consumer privacy on the Internet? What do you think? Well, obviously, I think the industry has some responsibility here, and but they're not going to do it necessarily unless they're pushed to do it because the default is data collection, and the business model for the new digital media uh, is really based on behavioral targeting. It's based on the kind of extensive collection of information about you and about what you do online in order to tailor marketing messages specifically to you. So the the business imperative works against um, responsible uh, behavior in many ways on the part of the companies. Uh, it's is, all about profit, right? Right, it is. And so I also think there is a role for the government to play in this. And the Federal Trade Commission has, because of prodding, from public interest groups like the Center for Digital Democracy and the Electronic Privacy Information Center and the U.S. PERG uh, groups uh, has finally begun to look at the issue of privacy and of the issue of behavioral targeting. It's issue, the agency's issued a set of proposed principles. They're pretty lightweight, but at least they are laying out some ideas about what companies should be doing. And um, there's actually a comment period underway, and if people go to ftc.gov, they can be involved in that comment uh, process because we really, what we really need to have, I think, is a public dialogue about how we create a media environment that lives up to its potential for participation and involvement, and I think there are many wonderful things about digital media, but does so in a way that doesn't endanger consumer privacy. And what do you think about the spyware that these commercial entities use? Well, I mean, that's another thing that I think you need to be very careful about. I mean, the fact of the matter is uh, there is a lot of um, technology out there, a lot of software that's capable of, you know, in, in many ways sort of invading our experiences uh, it, and, uh, and collecting data about us when we don't even know about it. And I think that this is an area that the government needs to do something about as well. And I know there are software programs people can get to, um, to protect themselves, but, uh, but we need to create an environment that is not, um, you know, kind of a wild west frontier, but one where there are a set of rules that, that people follow for, uh, for ensuring that people's privacy is protected. Yeah, I, you know, to me, I worry about the fact that it's not transparent when they're tracking us. Exactly. And and that is, I think, the worry even for these kids. You know, when right. they're when they're on a social networking site, for example, or they're uh, involved in some chat rooms, the fact or or they're you know communicating in some way. Whenever there is this kind of tracking or surveillance or whatever it is, and it's not transparent to them, I think that's what's really um, pretty dangerous, don't you? Yes, I do, too. And, and at the very least, we need full disclosure. I mean, if you go on the privacy uh, pages of some of these commercial sites, you won't really see the full story of what they're doing. 
No. And I think that there, there needs to be transparency. That is one of the principles that we ought to be applying to the digital media culture. Right. And we really, it really still is in its fluid stages. We are in a, a, an era when we can work out you know, the kinds of ways that we want to approach this new culture. It's really exciting when you think about it that you know it's like the early days of the birth of radio or television you know when these were brand new mediums that uh you know there was an opportunity even in with it, and I think with the internet even more so right. for uh a, a dialogue a debate a discussion about what kind of media culture we want for the future but what we see is that you know many of the um Many of the corporations that have controlled and influenced the earlier uh, mediums are moving in as well to this one. And so there are really strong forces here. Right. Um, at the same time, you know, sounding doom and gloom here, I don't want to do that completely. My book also looks at the potential for civic engagement and political involvement by young people, and it's something I believe very strongly in. I did a study in um, 2004 that's released on... Um, our American University website through the Center for Social Media called Youth as E-Citizens that looked at hundreds and hundreds of websites created by youth and for youth that were designed to involve them in community participation and democratic participation in voting, in volunteerism, in political activism. So we've never had a medium like that that's been able to really engage this generation in the way that I believe they really want to be engaged. Uh, my book also does a uh, includes a case study of the get out the vote efforts in the 2004 presidential election and the role that the internet played in all of these efforts. And that was a time when we began to see a bit of a reversal of uh, voter participation uh, trends, which had been on a downward um, move. And more young people did vote in that election. And I think we're seeing something very similar and a continuation of that trend now. We saw it in 2006. I think that we need to focus on the positive potential of this medium to engage young people and to encourage more and more of them to use it for political participation, to use it for civic engagement. I worry that the commercial forces might trivialize some of that, might turn all of that into one big you know, um, manipulative marketplace, and I think we need some balance between those two. Right, right. And, and part of this book covers the policy battles over the Internet and children, and you were obviously directly involved in this. What lessons really did you get from that? Well, one of the lessons I've learned, it's very difficult to fight for policies in Washington. I often talk about my two most tumbling experiences uh, in the last 15 or so years, and one is coming to Washington and trying to make you know, trying to make any changes in, in policy. The other is, of course, becoming a parent. Those are both very humbling experiences. <laughs> yes. Yes. And yeah. when they're related to each other, they're particularly um, particularly humbling and challenging. But, um, you know, I think that uh, it is one thing that's really heartening for me is that, you know, I was a, we ran a small group and we were able to make changes. The, you know, with the right... Um, 
organization with the right effort, with good ideas, you actually can get policies changed. The political climate has to be right. And in many cases, we were able to take advantage of certain things going on, whether it was a presidential election or, in the case of our privacy law, uh, pressures taking place in Europe um, that put pressure on the U.S. government to do something because of the European Union's um, efforts to... um, protect consumer privacy there but um but it's been exciting and then you to were very and then you were successful with the you know the the privacy policies for children that Absolutely. was that was a huge one too for i think and that you know took off because parents were worried about what their children were doing online well yes they were that's right and, and it was all, the worried, other thing that yeah. i think worked for us with that effort was that we did it early And the lesson that I had learned is that, you know, once these commercial practices become fully entrenched, as they have with television, it's very hard to make changes. And what we were dealing with was an early fluid period for this new medium and for the new e-commerce, you know, models that were being developed. We were able to intervene at an early time in the mid-1990s and say, look, let's try to figure out a way to do this thing. We're not telling you not to advertise. We're saying that if you're going to advertise, you simply have to follow some principles to let's develop some guidelines. Right. And, um, and I think ultimately that worked. Uh, you know, again, I think you, you, you can't expect to completely overhaul anything. I think you have to be real, very realistic when you work within the Washington, you know, inside the beltway here. Right, right. <laughs> but, you know, you know I think, you know, you can really get a lot more done at, at a state level like California. Look at what California has done with many privacy laws that, and many of those have actually been, you know, extended to the, the federal government that they well, have done it. But, you know, it's, I think it's a lot harder at, at the, the federal level. Well, that's true. In California, I think it, it, California is a particularly um, important state in that way. Uh, things that get done in California often migrate elsewhere and become, you know, the the model for the federal law, and I think that's terrific. Um, you know, there are challenges wherever you are. Right. So- I uh, I had to come to Washington. I knew I was going to have to come to Washington and do something from the time I was a very young person, <laughs> and uh, I'm glad I've glad I came here, and I, I'm glad I was able to actually do something that I can see as some legacy. Yes. Do you think it's the role of government to protect children and teens from the media content, or is it, or is it the parents? What do you think? Well, I think, every, you know, I think everybody plays a role here. I think, when, as I mentioned earlier, in the case of marketing and advertising and privacy, uh, the government does have an important role to play. Uh, and these are commercial transactions where the protections under the First Amendment are not as great as they are in other areas. So I see an appropriate role for government, a limited role, but an appropriate role. And we have an agency, the Federal Trade Commission, that's responsible for that. And so I think that that uh, is something that FTC needs to do and hopefully will continue to do and will we'll, you know, be able to uh, create a framework for protecting our privacy and for ensuring that we're dealt with fairly in the marketplace. I think when you get into areas of broader content, which is what a lot of the policy debates have been over, what's, what's indecent, what's inappropriate, 
um, then I think you have to be very careful about, you know, uh, giving a role to government there. And there is a reason why we have a First Amendment. Uh, I was involved in some of the uh, policy debates over the V-chip, which was an issue I was really kind of nervous about from the beginning, because I didn't like the role I didn't like the government playing a role in uh, determining the content, you know, of television in the case of the V-chip. The only reason I did get involved was that I was assured by my own attorneys who were experts in First Amendment law that the V-chip, you know, would would work with self-regulatory ratings, guidelines. But it's still pretty tricky, those things. Well, tell us, explain that to to us. Yeah, explain t- m- more about the V-chip and how that works. Well, um, the V-chip, of course, the V-chip is another good example of the kind of technological quick fix that has been very popular recently, whether it's, you know, coming up with filtering software, don't worry about anything, just, you know, plug the software in and it's all going to be okay, and a very complicated media culture. Uh, and in the case of the V-chip, after a long, long uh, set of debates and congressional hearings and research over TV violence, creating um, a mechanism that's embedded in every television that makes it possible to just block out the objectionable content. That was the idea behind the V-chip, and it was invented in Canada uh, to really, you know, give power to families to be able to say which content they didn't want to come into their homes. And again, it's this idea of the medium coming into their homes. But figuring out how to rate the programming is very complicated. It's not a role for government. And the Clinton administration, I would say, you know, encouraged the television industry, which wanted some things out of uh, what was going on on the Hill, and I write about this in the book, uh, the Clinton administration and Congress encouraged the industry to be cooperative and come up with a self-regulatory rating system. Uh, but that got pretty complicated, uh, and, and uh, the industry did not want to identify the violent content. So that's really when I became involved with some of the groups that I worked with, the National PTA and the American Psychological Association, the National Education Association, and other groups, uh, Children Now, actually, in California. Um, And we ended up negotiating with the industry to add the content descriptors uh, to the age-based ratings (laughs) Um, And now we do have, I have to admit, a rather complicated system. And, in fact, my husband says to me, whenever those those, um, symbols come on and it says TV 14 (laughs) DSLV, He always, first of all, he says, you're the only one who understands it, but he also <laughs> turns to me and jokes and says, well, you always did want to write for television. Ha, <laughs> ha, ha. So as a policy, I think it's, you know, pretty flawed as a tool. I'm not sure it works that well. Um, it, it was an effort to, to try to create some kind of mechanism that would not involve the government saying what content could be on and couldn't be on, but would still give parents some measure of control. And I don't think we've solved that problem yet. Yeah. And, you know, I, I worry about self-regulation. I've seen it not work in so many places. I've seen it not work with the, you know, the big data brokers. <laughs> and, right. Uh, you no, know, no, right. Uh, yeah, and, and so I, you know, I, I don't want someone to tell me everything I need to do. I don't want the governor to do it. But I just don't think that the players out there are, are you know, the the good companies will, will, will do the best practices. And they will you know, jump on board to do the right thing. But there's so many mm-hmm. companies with a, 
I just don't think that self-regulation really works. No, I agree with you. And, and one of the things I kept saying during the COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection uh, Act um, deliberations and, and th- throughout that whole campaign, is that what we really needed was a level playing field. In fact, I told a lot of the industry leaders that, that I worked with a lot of the lobbyists for the industry, look, you may be a good company and you may decide to do something uh, that's right here, but other companies will not. And so we need a level playing field for you and for consumers. And in fact, I think the model that emerged out of COPPA is a good model, uh, particularly for that issue, in that it is a law that the FTC enforces, right. but there also is a self-regulatory body through the Better Business Bureau and the Children's Advertising Review Unit, which that, that works with industry to ensure that the guidelines are followed and to keep them up to date. So I think you need a combination of things to make it work. Right. And you need consumer activism. You need consumers involved. You need watchdog groups. Mm-hmm. They are essential. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the good news is now they can use the Internet to, you know, even if you're a small office with oh, it, yeah. <laughs> the Internet also can give a great voice to these uh, public interest Oh, groups. there's great stuff going on. I mean, if you look at YouTube, there are so many wonderful, wonderful videos that are being used by activists. They're just so fabulous. There's one that I show that was a couple of years ago that the that you probably have seen that the ACLU did on um privacy. It's about ordering pizza. I don't know if you know that one. No, I didn't but see it. it is just so terrific because it it is a simulation of what what's going to happen in the not too distant future when you're ordering a pizza and the person at the other end knows absolutely everything about you. It is so funny, and it is so beautifully done. Yeah. And there are a number of these fabulous advocacy videos on a whole lot of really good issues, you know, in the media policy area, the issue of net neutrality, there's a whole lot of them on that. It's just, it's really great. You've written uh, about some of the social marketing campaigns that public health groups and others are doing to educate about sexual health, AIDS, smoking. How effective do you think these are? Well, I mean, what I've found is that, you know, in recent years, we've seen an increasing level of sophistication on the part of these social marketing campaigns. And the ones that I looked at um, had pretty good resources. I mean, most people know about the Truth Campaign, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, which got its money from the um, uh, settlement with the attorneys general with the tobacco companies and uh, was able to do some very, very high-profile uh, ads on television and some activism using uh, young people to really take on the tobacco industry um, and was able to also document that those things were effective. Uh, the same with the Kaiser Family Foundation, which has worked with MTV and BET and other media companies to target young people and to do it in very, very effective ways, often borrowing many of the same strategies and tactics that the advertisers and marketers have used, but doing it um, around a social issue, around a health issue, in the case of the Kaiser Family Foundation, around sexual issues, sexual health and AIDS, HIV. So there is, you know, it's a, I think there's a promising area of, um, for a number of nonprofits to be able to use the new media to reach young people with many, many um, social issue campaigns and health campaigns. There, there are marvelous tools there that are available. You know, we at this conference that I told you that we were at, um, there was a 
uh, uh, similar to what you're talking about, they were they had a uh, nonprofit that dealt with cyber stalking with with young people that uh, the cyber stalking that would affect teenagers. And this one teenager who actually was uh, being stalked by um, an older man from the East Coast, she was from California, um, was able to get help from law enforcement when they went to some internet site that had a video mm-hmm. that, you know, talked to them, you know, that the parents sat down and watched the video on the internet with their child, and it really, you know, did a, a whole interaction of mm-hmm. how someone yep. might get you, you know, get no, you to cyberstalk you. And this 15-year-old girl talked to us, on, and we brought our radio uh, field interview with us to, and heard her talk about how, you know, she never would have listened to her parents. However, when she right. saw this interactive interview, um, I mean, interactive video on the Internet, it suddenly, all of a sudden, it came home. It just, like, a light bulb went on, and it was great. And that's why now she helps support, you know, this nonprofit to help other kids that, you know, so that they won't be cyber-stalked. It's, it was right. amazing. So they are. The nonprofits are starting to use this same uh, marketing tool, which is great. Yeah, it really is. And the other thing is that young people are able to seek out information on all of these topics and really educate themselves about a lot of things. And that's great. So Lloyd says we don't have much more time, but I wanted to ask you, what do you think we need to do to ensure what you call a quality media culture for the young people in the digital age? Well, I think one thing we need to do is is not take anything as a given and understand that we as a society have a role to play here in helping make decisions about the future, that it isn't just automatically by default going to be what it is. There's an opportunity to, to have a public debate, to do research on how to develop you know, new campaigns, pro-social campaigns, how to use it, how to harness the digital media as a positive force in children's lives. And we need to really seize the moment to do that collectively. I just have one short question. What did your daughter think of all this? <laughs> <laughs> well, one of my funny lines was, uh, one of the experiences was, uh, you know, when I would ask, I, I, I dedicated the book, you know, to her. I, I yes. thanked her, and, and, I, and I said, she's my generation digital kid. And she said, you know what, Mom? You used me. <laughs> Did you said, well, I guess I did. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But but it was only for good. Only for good. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And we're going to tell everybody they have to go out and get Generation Digital, Politics, Commerce, and Child in the Age of the Internet. Thank you, Catherine Montgomery, for joining us. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it. Okay. Take care. All right. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host of Privacy Piracy. Please visit our website, KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy, to see our previous guests, download podcasts, listen to the archived interviews, and see our upcoming VIP guests. Thank you very much, and thank you, Lloyd. Have a great night. Hope you'll join us next Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.